بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Alhamdulillah, this is lesson five, I believe, in our study of the tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf. And in the past two sessions, we were looking exclusively at the first narrative in the chapter, the story of the Ashab Al-Kahf, the young men in the cave. And we had to spend a lot of time on that because it, it is the pivotal story in the chapter, and it is the story uh, after which the chapter is named. Surah Al-Kahf, referring to the Ashab Al-Kahf. And we mentioned in the very beginning of this course that we're looking at the chapter through the prism of different themes. So we're looking at the themes in the chapter and working from the efforts of scholars like Shaykh Abdul Rahman Habannaka, Rahimahullah, we see that there are about 11 identifiable themes in this chapter. So today, inshallah, we're going to look at the next series of verses that look at a particular theme. And this theme is addressing the Prophet wasallam and how he should be uh, towards others. And from that, we learn how we are also to be. So... After reading the story of the Ashab al-Kahf, which was an answer put forth, an answer given to a challenge by Quraysh, after all of that, Allah Ta'ala then says, and this starts from verse 27, and we're looking at verse 27 to 31. So in verse 27, Allah Ta'ala says, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم وَاتْلُوا مَا أُوحِيَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ كِتَابِ رَبِّكَ لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ وَلَنْ تَجِدَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا Which means, and recite what is revealed to you from the book of your Lord. There is no changing His words, and you will find no refuge except in Him. So there are a number of key terms in this verse. Allah Ta'ala, after telling the story of Ashab Al-Kahf, now gives a command to the Prophet Sallallahu instructing him to engage in tilawa. tilawa. Now, tilawa in Muslim nomenclature is associated with the melodious recitation of the Qur'an. If you want to listen to a tilawa, you're going to find someone who reads in a very clear, usually slow and melodious manner, such as Imam al-Husari, Imam al-Manshawi, and others. So tilawatul Qur'an is the recitation of the Qur'an. However, the word tilawa in Arabic actually means to follow. It means to follow. And here Allah Ta'ala is commanding His Beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to do tilawa. And the ulama of tafsir mentioned that there's actually two types of tilawa. There is the tilawa lafdhiyya, which is the verbal recitation. 
The tilawa lafdiyya is what we know of as tilawa, when a person recites the Qur'an melodiously. This is the verbal tilawa. The second kind of tilawa is tilawa amaliyya, or the practical recitation. And, or you could say it means to act upon whatever is being recited. So the tilawa amaliyya is not just reciting the verses, it's actually implementing the verses and going through one's life living in accordance to the guidance of the verses they recite verbally. So tilawa in Arabic means to follow. Linguistically, that's the basic meaning. And we see that in Surah Shams. What does Allah say? وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا So Allah swears by the sun when it's at the four, and when it's at the forenoon. وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا And He swears by the moon when it follows it. So the moon coming out after the sun sets. So talaha here is the verb. And it means to follow. So there's two types of tilawa. And here Allah Ta'ala is saying to recite what was revealed to you from the book of your Lord. So the ulama of tafsir mentioned that this tilawa is a command from Allah to the Prophet wasallam, telling him to recite those verses to his people and also to model the verses, meaning to behave in a manner that transmits how those verses are understood and applied and also to transmit this to the companions. So it's not just recite, read out loud. It is recite, teach, model, transmit. All of those things are implied in tilawa. Now after saying this, and recite what was revealed to you from the book of your Lord, la mubaddila li kalimatihi, which means there's no changing in his words. There's no tabdil in the kalimat of Allah. There's no replacement, alteration, or change to the kalimat of Allah. What are the kalimat? The kalima is the plural of kalima, which is word. So kalimat of Allah we could say that this is referring to the words of Allah in the scripture, the words of Allah in the Qur'an. We could also say that it refers to the decrees of Allah Ta'ala or the commands of Allah Ta'ala. And that's because, as the ulama teach us, there are two types of karimat. Among the karimat of Allah, you have al-karimatul kawniyah, which these are the Cosmic karimat, referring to Allah saying, Kun fayakun, willing things into existence, after non-existence. When Allah Ta'ala wills something into existence, إِنَّمَا أَمْرُهُ إِذَا أَرَادَ شَيْئًا أَنْ يَقُولَ لَهُ كُنْ فَيَكُونَ It is only that when Allah wills for something to be, that He says, be, and it is. So that execution of the divine will where something is brought into existence this kalima kauniya is the re- referring to kun fayakun then you have the kalimat the words that we call kalimat shar'iyya or the legal words 
And this is the, the address of Allah to creation, khitabullah. So the Qur'an, when it conveys commands and prohibitions and guidance and instruction, this is the khitab of Allah, the address of Allah to creation. That is the karimat al-shar'iyyah. So when Allah Ta'ala says in this verse, لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَرِمَاتِ That there is no changing of His words, it actually refers to both of these. So that means that no one can reverse time and undo what Allah has willed. Because whatever is willed is kun fayakun. Allah says be and it is. So the karimat kawniya, the, the cosmic command to bring things into existence, that cannot be undone. Time cannot be reversed. The decree of Allah cannot be overturned or overthrown or prevented or undone or anything like that. And no one can prevent Allah's decree from taking place in future events. No one can say, you know, just to give you an example, just off the top of my head, things that we know from the words of the Prophet ﷺ will take place in the future. So the signs of the Day of Judgment. Let's think of someone like the Mahdi, mentioned in sound hadith. There's no, there's no one who's going to be able to come into the future and say, you know, I'm going to stop that Mahdi from uh, ever appearing. I'm going to find out who his parents are, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to assassinate them before he's born. That's just not going to happen. Because we know from revelation that he's going to be born, that he's going to age, and that in his adulthood he's going to be selected and chosen for this role as a reviving figure. So that's just one example. Things that are going to happen in the future that Allah has decreed cannot be undone. There's no one to alter the decree of Allah. So that's in reference to al-karimatul kawniyyah. But then you have the karimat al-shari'iyya, right? The, the khitab of Allah, Allah's address to human beings. So the commands and the prohibitions. So the abiding rules established in the sharia of Allah, uh, in the Qur'an and upon the tongue of His Prophet wasallam. What is halal and what is haram? There's no one who can replace these things. Now, we got to talk a little bit about that. Meaning, no one can change what is halal into something haram or from something haram into something that is halal. So if you, you have to think about this in terms of what negation means. You say la in Arabic. Uh, la in Arabic can take two possible meanings in negation. There is uh, just basic negation, like that won't happen. And then there's prohibition. That is not allowed to happen. That should not happen. So if you say la, it could mean this is not happening or this cannot happen. It should not be allowed to happen. It's prohibited from happening. If I say to you, la tajdisi, don't sit down. That's a prohibition, right? So this is encompassing negation and prohibition in a sense meaning no one can change the words of Allah no one can alter the sharia and make it a binding sharia 
Does that mean that people can't try to alter the Sharia by putting in place of it man-made laws? Of course, that's possible. People do that all the time. Rulers for a very long time in different regions have tried at different time periods to alter, distort, replace the Sharia of Allah with man-made systems. We can think of one of the earlier examples of this occurring during the uh, Mongol period when the Mongols made headway into Muslim lands and defeated those Muslim empires. One of the first things they did was to establish the the system of law called the Yasuq that they had basically created as a system of man-made laws. It was an amalgamation, a combination of things from Christianity, uh, Buddhism, and even Islam and their own uh, Mongolian tribal customs all into this hodgepodge of laws that they put as the law of the land. Well, that's man-made law, right? So by them coming into Muslim territory, trying to change the laws of Islam, that's tabdil, right? There's a term, right, to replace the sharia with man-made laws. So that actually can happen and people can do that, but the negation here means no matter what is unacceptable, right? So this verse on the surface seems very straightforward and simple, but when you look at it from this perspective or that perspective, you see how deep it goes. The karimat can refer to the, the decree of Allah, and the karimat can refer to the sharia of Allah. What does it mean to replace or attempt to replace those things? So if we were to summarize the meaning of this verse, it's basically a command to the Prophet ﷺ by his Lord to tell Quraysh, to convey to Quraysh the words of Allah and to tell them that there is no compromise. There is no changing of the deen. There's no altering of the religion and the commands of Allah to accommodate kufr, to accommodate disbelief. Islam does not make room for perennialism, whether it's with a capital P or a lowercase p. Not many of you probably haven't heard that term, but perennialism is basically this belief that all religions are expressions or various paths on a mountain and they all lead to the same summit. So if you look at a mountain, you have the Muslims here, the Jews here, the Buddhists here, the Hindus here, the Christians there, and they're all at different places at the bottom of the mountain. But they're all climbing the mountain and they eventually get to the same summit at the top where they all meet. So perennialism is basically the belief that though there are differences in religions in the here and now, imminently, transcendentally or esoterically, they all go to the same summit at the end of the day. And therefore, they're all acceptable. But this is not the belief of Islam, right? So Allah is telling the Prophet to recite the words of Allah, these stories, these narratives, these commands, these prohibitions, and then informing them that la mubaddila li karimatihi there's no altering there's no changing there's no 
there's no amending the guidance of Allah to uh, incorporate or compromise with other beliefs that are contrary to Islam. So to incorporate those other ideas would require us to cancel out a very important feature of the Qur'an, which is the, the fact that Islam is the only way of salvation. We believe as Muslims in salvific, salvific exclusivity that all things considered, you have to be a Muslim and you have to believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah to enter Jannah. It's pretty simple. Now we have a whole discourse about what happens to people who didn't hear the message or they heard it incorrectly. They did, it didn't reach them or they lived in a time when there were no prophets or messengers. And, you know, there's a time for that conversation. But all things said and done, if a person understands the message and they turn away from it, well, they're denied salvation. Like the greatest thing we have as Muslims is najat, salvation. That you believe in la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Even if you're an utter failure in every aspect of your life, but you hold on to that, you have the hereafter. Doesn't mean you're guaranteed a free pass without trial, without accountability. But ultimately, when all things are said and done, in the, in the in view of eternity, you have that at least. So, in this verse, at the end, Allah Ta'ala says, لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ وَلَنْ تَجِدَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا After mentioning there's no replacing of the words of Allah, He then says, And you will not find any multahad uh, with anyone else besides Him. I mean, you will not find with anyone else besides Allah a multahad. What's a multahad? A multahada comes from the word iltahada. Yeah, and this means iltaja'a, which means to seek refuge. So a multahad is basically a refuge. It is a place of security. It is that source for protection and salvation and refuge. So the ulama mention that Allah Ta'ala is saying, if you do not recite and follow these ayat, you will not find any refuge besides Allah. So this is actually addressing the Prophet ﷺ. But as we've mentioned many times before, you have to be very careful when you read the verses that are addressing the Prophet ﷺ because oftentimes those verses are addressing him, but they're actually meant for the Ummah. It's very important to understand that. A clear example of this is in the very first verses, among the very first verses that were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ. After he received the first part of Surah Alaq, what verses did he receive in Revelation? Who can remind us? Yes. Ya ayyuhal muddathir, qum fa'anzir, wa rabbaka fakabbir, wa thiyabaka fatahir, wa rujza fahjur. Allah addresses him in these verses, right? And in those verses, it says, وَثِيَابَكَ فَطَاهِرٌ And purify your garments. 
فهجر and forsake impurities here meaning idols how do we understand those verses do we say that Allah is telling the Prophet ﷺ to shun idols because he was somehow near to them and involved with them? You know? Right? If I'm, you know, if I'm not punching someone in the face, no one needs to tell me don't punch someone in the face. Only if I'm doing it or I'm about to do it, right? But this verse is addressing the community. So it's addressing the Prophet ﷺ directly. وَالْمُرَادُ بِهَا الْأُمَّةِ the, the intention behind it is addressed to the Ummah. Right? So the same thing here, when Allah says, uh, you will not find any refuge besides Him, meaning if you don't recite these verses, does that mean that He could have done anything of the sort? Absolutely not. It's directly to the Prophet ﷺ, but it's addressed to us. And this is universal, right? Uh, and you have verses like this: "La in ashrakta la yahbatana amaluk." If you were to associate partners with Allah, your deeds would have been null and void. Is it even a possibility that he could have done that? No. But Allah is addressing him directly. But the message is actually to us through. The address given to the Prophet So this verse is actually a warning to all people who would replace the Sharia with man-made laws. And a person may say, well, I'm not a ruler. I'm not a governor. I don't have the power of legislation. I'm just an ordinary person. But it even applies to, to ordinary people too. Uh, not so much in the realm of making laws, but in what we give preference to, you know? Like I told the story one time. It's just one of those stories that sticks out in my memory. Uh, as a new Muslim, I was in the iftar line. The guy in front of me had a big gold necklace on. <laughs> and the person next to me told this guy, you know, gold is haram for men. The Prophet wasallam forbade gold for men. So this guy could have had two responses. He could have said, you're right, astaghfirullah, I'll take it off. Or he'll say, you're right, and I'm a weak Muslim. But his response was neither. His response was, but I like it. Okay, I mean, if you didn't like it, you wouldn't wear it. So you're stating the obvious. But the... He said it with this smile as if, well, yeah, that's, that's the case, but I like it, so I'm going to do whatever I want, right? Or you have people who say, yeah, that's Islam, but I prefer this way. You know, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. And this is not at the same level as removing a hukum of Allah and putting in place another hukum and enforcing that on society. What a ruler might do, that's much more serious, but this is kind of a, a minor version of that, you know. It's not a tabdeel in a legal sense, but it's a tabdeel in one's life. So one has to be careful. So this is a warning. After mentioning this, Allah Ta'ala gives another command to the Prophet He says, وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكْ 
واصبر نفسك مع الذين يدعون ربهم بالغداة والعشي يريدون وجهه ولا تعد عيناك عنهم تريد زينة الحياة الدنيا ولا تطع من أغفلنا قلبه عن ذكرنا واتبع هواه وكان أمره فرطا Here Allah Ta'ala gives another command واصبر نفسك In the translation it says And content yourself with those who pray to their Lord morning and evening. We could also say, be patient, right? Wasbir from sabr. Be patient. Content yourself with those who pray to their Lord morning and evening, desiring His presence, His countenance, His wajj. And do not turn your eyes away from them, desiring the glitter of this world. And do not obey him whose heart we have made heedless of our remembrance. So he follows his own desires and his priorities are confused. So here the, the command is to be patient, right? Sabar, to be patient and to content oneself. Allah is telling his beloved وسلم, to hold yourself together with resolve in the company of a specific group of people. Who are those people? Those who invoke their Lord in the early and latter part of the day. Now this is dua. And dua we know of as supplication. However, in the Quran, you will often find that the word dua is used to refer to ibadah in a general sense, right? Right? The, so many verses in the Qur'an where Allah mentions dua, but it actually just means ibadah in a broader sense, right? Right? So here, it, Allah is saying, be patient with those who are worshipping Allah in the morning and the evening. Not just dua with the hands raised, that and other forms of ibadah. That's what it means. So, this is a command Allah gives to the Prophet ﷺ to have patience, fortitude, and resolve in educating and rearing the generation of the Sahaba. Allah is telling His beloved ﷺ to be patient as he spends time with his companions, rearing and educating them. To be eager to guide them, to be eager to help them, meeting them at least twice a day in the morning and in the evening. So Allah says, be patient with these people, right? Who are worshipping Allah in the morning and the evening. يُرِيدُونَ wajha. They desire His countenance, His essence. They desire His presence. So they're not doing it for show. They're not, they're not doing it to gain any prestige. They're doing it sincerely. And then Allah Ta'ala gives him a prohibition, a nahi. So first there's amr, then there comes the nahi. And do not avert your gazes from them. So here... In the beginning of the verse, Allah is commanding him to be patient, spending time with them. And then comes the prohibition. 
Do not avert your gazes from them. So think about this, averting the gaze. How many times, once you notice it, it's hard to ever forget it. How many times people will have conversations with someone and they're talking and looking, both of them are looking off at different directions. So person A is standing next to person B, they're both talking to each other, and they're, it's as if they're talking in this direction, and they're side by side. This is very common, especially with men. And as opposed to talking face to face, you know, looking at the person in the eyes and all of this. So it's a habit that people have sometimes, where they avert their gaze from the person they're talking to. Uh, sometimes it's anxiety, Right. Whereas the Prophet ﷺ would always look people in the eye. And it wasn't a staring all the time. It was usually in a more passive sense. But here Allah Ta'ala is saying, do not avert your eyes from them. So the meaning of this is pay attention to them and gaze upon them with concern and with affection and uh, wanting good for them. And there are many, many hadith which describe the nadarat, the gazes of the Prophet ﷺ towards the companions. We have the hadith in the Shema'il where the companions would walk behind him out of respect also to guard him, to look out, look, look out for him. And he would tell them, Leave my back for the angels. And he would have the companions walk in front of him. Now the ulama mentioned a couple of wisdoms for this. You think about the normal protocols for a leader. The normal protocols call for his followers to walk behind him because he's the leader. He's the imam after all. And they're also looking, they're guarding him. They have his back, you know. We say in English, I got your back. So why did he tell them to leave his back for the angels and to walk in front of him? Some of the ulama say, the wisdoms of this include his gazes. When they're behind him, he's walking this way and they're behind him, he's not gazing upon them. Whereas if they're in front of him walking, he can gaze on them as a father would gaze on his young children. If you're going with your children to a park or walking on the sidewalk, you have a toddler, four or five-year-old, are you going to have them walk behind you? You are the leader, mother or father, but you're not going to have them walk behind you because they're young. You need to have them in front of you so they can walk and you can look after them and notice things that they may not notice. So much like a parent, he would have the Sahaba walk in front of him so that he could look at them. Uh, a second reason some mention is that out of adab, no one should ever put their foot over the footprints of the Prophet Right? You, you wouldn't put your foot anywhere near something associated with him. So... To prevent that from happening, he would tell them to walk in the front. So that wouldn't inadvertently happen where someone puts their foot 
where his footprint is. Uh, but the first one is the most likely explanation. So, وَلَا عَنْهُمْ Do not avert your gazes from them. تُرِيدُ زِينَةَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Do not avert your gazes from them, desiring the glitter of the world, the adornment of the world. So, in order to understand the background of this verse, we need to understand the story connected to it. This verse is actually connected with another verse in Surah Al-An'am. And both of these verses together give us a context for what is being communicated in this verse. Allah is saying, Do not avert your gazes from them, desiring the glitter of the world. Meaning, do not turn your gazes away from them, desiring to please the people of power, of high rank and authority in this life. So this verse is connected with the verse in Surah Al-An'am. So let's look at that verse and this verse and the story that connects them. In Surah Al-An'am, Allah Ta'ala addresses the Prophet Sallallahu and this is also in a prohibition, a nahi. He says, وَلَا تَطْرُدِ الَّذِينَ يَدَعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ Do not expel those who call upon their Lord in the morning and the evening, seeking His presence. So the verse in An'am is very similar to this verse. The only difference is the word used in the beginning. In Surah Al-Kaf, وَلَا تَعْدُ عَيْنَاكَ عَنْهُمْ تُرِيدُ زِينَةَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا So, uh, before that, وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ Be patient. And this verse says, Do not expel those who are calling upon their Lord morning and evening, seeking His presence. There's a story. The, this verse was revealed for a reason. The sabab of nuzul, the cause of revelation. And the hadith mentions that the verse in An'am was revealed because some of the elite of Meccan society from Quraysh wanted a private audience with the Prophet wasallam, uh, or they wanted to sit with him in the front rows among the companions to be in the front so he they asked the prophet sallallahu to move the poor and impoverished sahaba from who were in the front to the back or to send them out altogether so some of them said we will become muslim but only if these poor people are put in the back. We don't want to sit with them, right? So these are the high and mighty, the pompous of, of, the, of Quraysh, of Meccan high society. They thought, well, maybe we'll become Muslim, but we'll only do it if he takes these poor people and sends them out or sends them to the back because we don't want to sit with them. And some of those Quraysh also claimed that these poor people who were sitting with the Prophet ﷺ were only doing so because of their poverty. As if Islam was just a means of them getting fed 
and they didn't embrace Islam sincerely. So what you find in this verse in Surah An'am is them making a condition that these people who are calling upon Allah night and day, who are humble and sincere, they're being told, they're telling the Prophet them to kick them out, put them in the back, get them away from us. But then Allah is saying, no, be patient with them, remain with them. Not only remain with them, don't avert your gazes from them, desiring anything that these people have. Right? So then he says, in, in the next phrase, وَلَا تُطِعْ مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهُ وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطًا And do not obey him whose heart we've made heedless of our remembrance. So he follows on his own desires and his priorities are confused. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, do not obey people who have these three qualities. So look at the structure of the verse. In the beginning, wasbir nafsak, command, be patient with those who call upon Allah morning and evening seeking His presence. Wala ta'adu aynaka, and do not avert your gazes from them. And then that's a prohibition. And now comes a second prohibition. Wala tulti'a, do not obey those who have these three qualities. The Prophet ﷺ is forbidden from obeying those who have these three qualities. Number one, the hearts that are made heedless from the remembrance of Allah. مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهُ And those who follow their vain desires, their caprice. وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطًا and the ones whose priorities are confused. Tafsir in English is very limited because we're, we're translating words in Arabic and explaining the English meanings of English terms. So you have to go deeper to really understand what is being said here. Allah is telling the Prophet ﷺ, do not obey the people whose hearts have been made heedless of Allah's dhikr, those who follow their hawa, their caprice, and those uh, whose affair, whose matter is furuta, confused, or their priorities are mixed up. Furuta here means the ma- their matters are darkened or excessive. They leave what is good and they follow what is evil. They forsake truth. They abandon truth and they embrace falsehood. So these are all implied in that phrase, وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطًا Their priorities are all confused. So anyone with these three qualities should not be obeyed. And those with these three qualities are going to the Prophet ﷺ and saying, we will become Muslim, and we will sit with you. However, you have to kick these people out. You have to get rid of these people, send them to the back or send them out because they're not really sincere. They're just here to get fed. 
The only reason they're Muslim is because they're so poor, and this is kind of some sort of means of getting themselves fed and taken care of. So Allah Ta'ala says, do not obey these people. Now, you, you need to think deeply about this. Think about a scenario where you have strong, committed believers and you have people who are potential Muslims. What if the price of getting these people to become Muslim was to send those sincere, dedicated believers out the back door? Wouldn't that be a small sacrifice to make? Think about this. As a leader, couldn't the leader just say, okay, you guys are sincere. In the interest of da'wah, we want them to become Muslim. So we'll just send you out the back because the harm of that is much minor, much less than the harm of these people remaining in kufr. Think about it, priorities and whatnot. Now, Imam al-Razi brings this up. And he, he puts it in the form of a question. He says, suppose someone asks, doesn't it make sense to give priority to something more important than what is less important? Meaning, if the poor were told to get out or to go to the back, that may sadden them, but that harm is much less than the harm of these people of Quraysh remaining in kufr. Think about it. It's like, okay, your feelings are hurt for an hour. But the price of that is, your feelings are hurt, but they become Muslim as a result. You get over it, and now they're Muslim. It's all said and done. Wouldn't you be willing to sacrifice some people's feelings for an hour in the interest of getting the elite of Quraysh to become Muslim? Right? We're talking about what is more important and what is less important. Or what is a, a minor harm and what is a greater harm. Shouldn't we sacrifice one to avert the greater harm? That, that's the question that he's putting forth. And he gives a beautiful, brilliant answer. He says, yes, we can concede that not sending the poor Muslims out would cause the Quraysh to remain on their kufr. Right? Because if they don't get kicked out, they stay kafir. He says, we concede that not sending those poor Muslims out would cause the Quraysh to remain on their kufr. However, anyone who would forsake Iman just because they didn't want to sit with poor people never had Iman to begin with. That is nothing but hypocrisy, he says. And no intelligent person should pay this individual any mind. No one should pay attention to their so-called iman that they will not express unless they kick a poor person out. Right? So basically, he's saying, if a person would refuse to become Muslim because of a petty reason, they were never sincere about becoming Muslim in the first place. Right? And, you know, I, I've, I've encountered some people like that. You know? There's people I've encountered where they, they say, yeah, you know, I will become a Muslim 
But because alcohol is forbidden, I'm not, right? I, I even know one person, you know, regardless of the issue of music and the, the difference of opinion about the permissibility of instruments and whatnot, regardless, uh, I, I encountered one person, non-Muslim. They said, well, I like my music. And if I have to give up my music in order to go to heaven, then I guess I'm not going to go to heaven. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's just petty. It's like, oh, I would become Muslim if only these things were allowed. Or if only you do this. Like these petty concerns. If there's sincerity, these things would not be impediments. That's basically the message. So, these people whom the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to be with and keep company with are those who call upon Allah in the morning and the evening. They, they called upon Him, they worshipped Him sincerely, seeking His presence, meaning they didn't desire worldly benefit or power or authority, but Quraysh wanted power and authority, and they didn't want to give those things up in order to gain truth and eternal bliss in the hereafter. Now here's the great irony. If you look at the verse in Al-Am, and this verse here, and the reason why it was revealed, Remember we said, some of those Quraysh were saying, these poor Muslims, th these poor people are only Muslim because it's an opportunity for them to get fed. They're accusing the poor Muslims of being insincere and only being Muslims to get a bite to eat. That's what they accuse them of. So the irony is that the Quraysh, who are not seeking the pleasure of Allah, are accusing the poor among the Muslims of being insincere. So the insincere are accusing the sincere of insincerity. It's pure projection. They're just projecting their own state onto these people. right? It's as if in their minds they've said to themselves, "If well, if I was poor, I would fake this just to get food. And therefore, that's, that must be what they're doing as well. So their own insincerity is projected onto others. So Allah Ta'ala in this verse doesn't just call them uh, poor people. He doesn't call them that. He says, وَاصْبِرُ نَفْسَكَ Be patient with those who call upon their Lord in the morning and the evening. يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ Seeking His presence, seeking His countenance. Sincerely. So Allah affirms their sincerity, right? And telling the Prophet not to obey such people who demand you to uh, respond to these petty demands, right? Now, this verse, broadly speaking, is instructing us as an ummah to seek the suhbah of good and sincere people. And by being and by saying wasbir nafsaka, be patient, it implies that we have to be patient with good people too. You know, and it's important to think about that because we may have friends who are good people, but they're not perfect people, and neither are we. And 
even if they're good companions, they're human beings like us. And they have faults, they have perhaps bad habits, they have things they may struggle with, or they may have a bad day. And we, you don't throw away the friendship just because they have a bad day. You have to also be patient with them, and they have to be patient with you, even though they're still good people. The Sahaba were good people, yet the Prophet ﷺ is told, Wasbir nafsaka, be patient with them. And teaching them and guiding them, right? So it also teaches us that we need mentors, we need teachers, we need good companions. And it also teaches us that hanging around with people of dunya will cause us to incline to people of dunya and dunya itself. So the Prophet ﷺ is told to keep the company of his companions. It's a profound thing when you think about it because he's the, he's the superior. right? And they are Sahaba, so they're keeping company with him. But he's also told to keep company with them and to be patient in teaching them and educating them and dealing with them come as, as new Muslims. So note here... Sure. Zina is the adornment, yeah, yeah the glitter. So in the verse, yeah, ولا تعذعينك عنهم تريد زينة الحياة الدنيا. Do not avert your gaze from them, seeking the zina of the dunya. So the zina here, the ulama mentioned uh, worldly wealth, prestige the uh, Quraysh and their power being subsumed into yours by becoming Muslim. Because remember, this is in connection with those Quraysh who said, we want to become Muslim and sit with you, but only if you kick these poor people out. So this Turidu, you desire, it's referring to actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is He's not a... Quraysh? No, no, this is speaking to the Prophet wasallam. This is not affirming that the Prophet ﷺ desired those things. Yeah. This is a hal in the, in the Arabic language. So when you say, uh, the verse says, وَلَا تَعَدُوا عَيْنَكَ عَنْهُمْ تُرِيدُ زِينَةَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا Do not avert your gaze from them in a hal or in a state of such a person who does so seeking the glitter of the dunya. Meaning don't, because... You avert your gaze from someone for a lot of reasons, right? You're looking at someone and then you avert it. What would be the reason for averting the eyes? You could be looking at this or looking at that. Allah is saying, don't avert your eyes from them to seek the glitter of dunya. It's not affirming that he did. It's just saying, do not do that. Because Quraysh, who were coming and saying we want an audience with you, but only if you kick these poor people out. They are coming with power, prestige, and wealth, influence, right? So it's as if they embodied this zina of the dunya, the, the possibilities that come with them being Muslim and having access to that authority, that influence, and that wealth. Allah is telling the Prophet ﷺ, do not avert your gaze from the Sahaba seeking whatever they may have because 
yeah, don't be deceived by any of that. So it's not affirming that he actually did so. But Allah is prohibiting him from doing it. Right? right. But and, and note the three qualities. He says, وَلَا تُطِعْ مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهُ وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطًا Do not obey the one whose heart we have made heedless of our remembrance. Note that Allah says, أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ doesn't say لِسَانَهُ He says the one whose heart I've made heedless. He doesn't say the one whose tongue I've made heedless. This is subtle because a person can have dhikr on his tongue, but his heart is somewhere else, right? That doesn't mean a person should give up dhikr, right? But the lesson is there. The dhikr should ideally have an effect. It has to come from the heart ideally. So the message here is that Islam does not need anyone. Allah does not need anyone to become a Muslim. Islam, the Ummah, right, we don't need arrogant disbelievers to become Muslim to benefit us. Right? Them becoming Muslim is for their benefit. Them remaining in kufr is to their detriment. Right? It's not a harm to Islam that these people don't become Muslim. And it's not a harm to Islam that the weak and the poor believers uh, remain as Muslims or are those in the forefront. Wait, we don't sideline the poor Muslims just to appease to arrogant disbelievers. So, going to the end of this, so Allah mentions the three qualities. Don't obey those who have these three qualities. The first is ghafla, basically. The second is following caprice, right? Hawa. And the third thing, wakana amruhu furuta, the one who whose priorities are confused. This one should we should look into a little bit. Wakana amruhu furuta. This is describing those disbelievers. But we see throughout the Quran how many times Allah describes the qualities of disbelievers and we as Muslims take a broader lesson from those descriptions, learning what we should not be. So, وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطَ basically is when the person is going for something that is not important at all and leaving aside what is supremely important. Right, the person, for example, they have to choose between eternal salvation or whatever music genre they like. You know, they have to choose between eternal salvation or a bottle of wine. Your 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 matter is confused and mixed up, and your priorities are out of whack. If you would prefer a fleeting desire here over eternal salvation. So their priorities were completely mixed up. They would prefer to have this audience and to kick out the poor uh, and to have their power and prestige over actual submission to truth. Right? So we can take admonishment from these qualities and learn what not to, to be because many Muslims can be severely mixed up in their priorities, right? You, you, can, you have good Muslims 
who are also mixed up in their priorities because they don't distinguish between what is important, what is less important, what is supremely important. Or you have Muslims who they're supposed to have a purpose in existence, but they don't live their life like there's any such thing. It's just you know Muslim in name, but their life revolves around everything else but worshiping Allah Taala. It's a side thing, right? And among practicing Muslims, you have this problem as well. People who are you know somewhat educated, they know some basic foundations, but priorities get mixed up over time, uh, or. They're very pious, but because they're not really educated, they give a lot of attention to one thing that is important to a certain degree, but they do not pay attention to things that are more important, right? Well, the person, for example, who... This would be the person who was really avid to come to pray the tarawih. You know, they pray tarawih, and they don't miss a single night in Ramadan. They pray all 20, but... They have some years, perhaps, of qada to make up, make up prayers, but they don't attend to them. So they're very eager to attend to things that are sunnah, or even emphasize sunnah, as it is for the Hanafis, uh, but they neglect things that are fart, right? So we got to learn the fiqh, the fiqh of priorities, fiqh al-awlawiyyat. Imam al-Ghazali has a very important book on this topic, Mizan al-Amal which is the scale of actions. How do you learn how to prioritize what is important? How do you distinguish between what is important, less important, more important? And how do you attend to things that are, uh, that are narrow in, the, in their scope? Meaning they have a short amount of time to do them versus things that have uh, more time. Like, how do you prioritize things in Islam, basically? Like I'll give you an example, you know, a basic one they give in usul. You have things that are uh, time-restricted and things that are more expansive. So let's say you come to the masjid for dhuhr and you miss the jama'ah. It's dhuhr time, you miss the jama'ah. And there's a janazah that's about to happen They've, they've gone off to the cemetery, they're, they're, they're taking it, and they're taking the body, they're going to do the janazah. So you have two things here, praying your fard, or going to that janazah and getting that reward. Which one should you do first? But there's something I didn't add, if you pray, if you pray the dhuhr, you're going to miss the janazah. Yeah. So which one should you do? Janazah? Okay, the janazah is going to come and go. Yeah, no it's a very narrow time. Yeah, the fard of dhuhr is more expansive in time. You have, you have a few hours. Now, one is fard and one is sunnah. So in terms of priority, fard takes precedence over the sunnah. But in this case, it's muwasa'ah. Uh, it has more time. And the sunnah, in this case, is mudayyik. It's, it's more narrow. So 
you can't just look at it as this is fard and therefore more important. You also have to look at the time constraints of one versus the other. Because you can go pray the janazah, go there, and you have time to pray dhuhr. You still have two hours left and you're well within the time. If there's time constraints with both, like say there's there's 20 minutes before Asr yeah. and they're going for a janazah yeah. that will take 20 minutes yeah. and then you haven't prayed the then obviously you're going to pray the first because the time is now narrow so you're prioritizing the fard over the sunnah when when the time is narrow for both so the point I'm making is that there are considerations to make yeah we don't go to the, the maqbara, yeah. Yeah, it's more, of a, it's more of a scenario as an example to get you to think about the relative priority based between fard and sunnah and what has time and which doesn't have time. Um, the idea is that the more you learn about these things, the more you're able to prioritize so that you have things that are, you know, who was it? You know that that the best-selling book, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or, or something like that, Stephen Covey, bestseller. He has, maybe he's not the first to do this, but he has in the book a basic uh, way of organizing time. He divides things into four quadrants. Mm-hmm. So think of a box, mm-hmm. a square with with basically four smaller squares. You have things that are important, uh, but they're not a priority. Things that are not a priority and they're not important. Things that are important and a priority. What's the fourth one? They're important, but not a... They're a priority. Like there's narrow time, but they're not that important. Like you organize things like this. And obviously you're going to attend to things that are urgent and important over things that are urge uh, not important and not urgent so that would be the two ends of it right and he makes a he makes a good point he says a lot of things that are um, important but not urgent if you don't attend to them they become important and urgent <laughs> like it's like a person who they have to take care of their health right that's a constant decision every single day and that's important, but it may not be urgent. Like, you know, they cheat, they eat this, they eat that, they don't always work out, they don't take care of their health, their sleep, their stress. But if they don't take some measure to improve their health over time, that will become important and urgent, where they have to do something right now to address the problem. So, وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ furuta means their priorities are confused, right? So the, the, the lesson there for us as Muslims is to not be confused in our priorities. Yeah. So this is what I'm just thinking of, you know, because we know that the Prophet said, I came to perfect character. Right. And then we're talking about things that are like fard and whatever. Like I've come across in my personal experience where there's people who prioritize their prayer, prioritize Quran, but then they treat their wife like crap. Yeah. You know, like they're abusive to their children. Yeah. 
Like or they, I've, or they, I've come across like where, or they cheat people in business. They cheat people in yeah. business. There you go. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So like, you know, you kind of like I know people who really struggle, convert sisters or people who really struggled in their dean because they were with somebody who, oh, he would never, he would get up for tahajjud every night, he would read his Quran, mm-hmm. but he would feed his children right, right. or treat his wife really badly. You know, like we're like, like, cause you know, then later on they end up leaving this person and they're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I don't want to ever be with somebody who's so religious right? because of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you, I've come across that quite a bit Yeah. where there are people who, you know, they're in the masjid, perfect human being to everybody in the masjid, but in their homes, yeah, they're really awful to their family. Yeah, everybody's everybody's pious in the masjids, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody's mashallah, you know. First row. First row, right? No, you're right. Um, now we should say that it's never a question of prioritizing character over the other faraid, right? There are, you know, there are some people who have this confused way of looking at things. Where they prioritize treating people well over fulfilling the fara'id of Allah. Mm-hmm. It's as if it's an either or for them. They say, well, you know, I, yeah, I may not pray, I may not do this, but I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And there are people who do that among Muslims and non Muslims. They say, you know, I don't, you know, I don't follow any religion, I'm just, I just try to be a good person. Yeah, right? So we have to be careful in how we frame it. But from an Islamic perspective, it should be clear that as Muslims, there are rights that Allah has over us, and there are rights that other human beings have over us. And the default with the rights of Allah is that He forgives if they're transgressed against. You seek forgiveness, you make tawbah, but the good opinion we have of Allah is forgiveness and pardon and mercy. That's the default. We don't default to you going to hell. But when it concerns the rights of other people, the default is that they're not forgiving, they're not going to pardon you, they're not going to let it go. Which means that you can't assume that you can just run over people, violate their rights, and they're just going to let it slide on the Day of Judgment. No, you actually have to take active measures to... Well, first stop it, but redress the wrongs you did in the past by apologizing, returning the rights that are owed to them, and so on. So this brings up an important point. Which is worse, the one who neglects the prayer or the one who is oppressive towards other people? Right? There are ulama who say that leaving the salat, the one who abandons salat is worse than the one who violates the rights of other people. However, there are others who say no. The one who oppresses other people is worse than the one who neglects their prayer but doesn't oppress other people. Again, why? Because that is a sin Allah can forgive it. Right? It's between them and Allah. Whereas these involve other human beings and we can't assume they forgive. Right? So, would that apply to this description? Of course. وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرَطًا It could be a person who 
they they live a very fragmented Islam where to them Islam is only praying and only doing these ritual acts while neglecting their own character development and treating people correctly. So they think that they can be pious while cheating others, while backstabbing others, while abusing others, while breaking promises to others, while being uh, uh, generally a mean, sour, dour, you know. There's a certain stereotype that certain religious people may have of the stern, angry, perpetually upset, frowning, right? And but you know they're religious, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what I've seen happen it's often I'm only dealing mainly with women, right? mm. but in the past, like, she might not be a new convert, she might be somebody coming from a cultural, ba- Muslim cultural background or something like that, and she marries, and the brother is extremely strict with certain things, and but yet treats her, the children, or whatever bad, or, you know, particularly her, she ends up actually leaving him, and sometimes marrying a non-Muslim guy mm-hmm. because the non-Muslim guy treats her yeah. so nicely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she associates, and then that's with the children too. You see that with children. Yes. They associate Islam with all these strict, yeah, mean, right, right, right. awful things. Like Quran, sadly, they yeah. um, associate Quran with abuse. Like right. hit and whatever. They associate all those things. So they always see those things as negative, right. right? So it's just, you know, it's very sad when you come across this often, yep. right? Like, you know, um, so it's kind of like, I don't want to have anything to do with Islam because that was it. Or they'll say, I'll never give up my Islam, I'm Muslim, but like now she's with a brother who doesn't even pray. Yeah, the, the, the verse is, the verse here is saying, describing these people, and says, وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرُطَى Which means their priorities are confused. Exactly. And we have to understand that that can go both ways. Both sides, yeah. Right? أَمْرُهُ فُرُطَى يعني فُرُطَى here means it could be to the left, to the right. So a, a Muslim's priorities could be confused if they think that the epitome of Islam is just in the externalities of faith but without any good character or without any spiritual depth. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just, oh, how many prayers I get done, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's misplacing priorities. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the person who gets burnt out from people like that, saying, well, I'm just going to be a good person. I, I may not pray or fast or do anything, mm-hmm. but I'll just be nice. Mm-hmm. Their priorities are also confused because they think that you can only, well, you can, you, you can only be a nice person if you give up prayer, if you give up all these things. How about you do both? You know, most people can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can pray, you can do all these things while also being a good person, right? So it goes both ways, and you know. And in Ummah, mostly we are divided. God divided, not each person, but majority into these groups. Either this or that. Yeah, everyone has their own, their own, their own issues, right? There are people who tend to. There are people who tend to be more agreeable in their nature, and they're more open. 
and their their conflict avoidance, they're nicer to people in general. It's just it's not even through purposeful character development. It's just the way they tend to be. And then you have people who are generally disagreeable. It's just how they are. Now, the disagreeable people have to become a little bit more agreeable. You have to smooth out the character. Those who are agreeable have to also smooth their character out where they can also take a stance and not just go along with the crowd. Like Everyone has their own challenge. If you're an introvert, there are certain things that will challenge you in this life, certain areas you have to work on. If you're an extrovert, there are certain things you have to work on. If you're an extrovert, you have to learn how to, you know, tone it down sometimes, become a little more insular, go inwards and reflect and quiet and down. If you're an introvert, maybe you need to speak up at times. Maybe you need to get out, put yourself out there more so that you come into a balance, right? This wasatiya. Wasatiya is the opposite of wakana amruhu furuta, on this side or that side, right? So we've kind of gone over the time here. Um, we'll just end with the last two. Uh, it's relatively quick. So after mentioning this, Allah gives another command. وَقُولِ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ إِنَّا أَعْتَدَنَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ نَارًا أَحَاطَ بِهِمْ صُرَادِقُهَا وَإِنْ يَسْتَغِيثُ يُغَاثُ بِمَاءٍ كَالْمُهْلِ يَشْوِ الْوُجُوهِ and say the truth is from your Lord. Whoever wills, let him believe. And whoever wills, let him disbelieve. We have prepared for the unjust a fire whose curtains will hem them in. And when they cry for relief, they will be relieved with water like molten brass, which scalds the faces. What a miserable drink and what a terrible place. So the next command to the Prophet is to say, the truth is from your Lord. And then Allah affirms that we're not compelled and that we make a choice and we face the consequences of our choice. Now, this is not a literal free choice where Allah is telling us that either choice is fine. Man sha'a far yu'min wa man sha'a far yakfur. Do whatever you want to do. But it's affirming that we make choices and we face the consequences. It's a warning that if you choose this, you have eternal salvation. If you choose that, you have eternal damnation. But at the end of the day, we're all responsible for our own choices and what we acquire. And that's one of the great lessons that needs to be imparted to people in in this society. The idea that other people... that other people are the cause of my actions. Right? I did this, and they're responsible for what I did. I did X, Y, Z, and it's their fault and not my fault. Right? You make choices, you, you have circumstances, but ultimately you're responsible for what you do. No one else is responsible for what you do. So... Here, Allah Ta'ala is giving a dire warning, telling the Prophet Sallallahu to say, this is the truth is from your Lord. Whoever wills to believe, will believe. Whoever wills to disbelieve, let him disbelieve. And then he says, we have prepared 
a fire. Right? We have prepared for the unjust a fire whose curtains will hem them in. And when they cry for relief, they will be relieved with water like molten brass, which galls the faces. So this is very profound because Allah says, A'tadana, we have prepared. Allah Ta'ala could have created everything in a single instant. But we see He created things in this world through a process. Allah does not need a process. Allah does not need to take steps for things to progress from point A to Z. If Allah wants to create a human being, He can create the human being like Adam But He wills that all human beings descended from Adam are created through a process of gestation, birth, and development. And the same thing applies to Jannah and Jahannam. Allah Ta'ala is saying here that we have prepared, meaning we have willed that the hellfire goes through a process whereby it grows larger and larger and hotter and hotter. So that's not said explicitly, but by saying, we have prepared, it implies that hellfire went through a process. That's affirmed in a hadith of the Prophet He mentions that the hellfire was kindled for a thousand years until the flames turned white and then was kindled for another thousand years until the flames turned black. So by saying prepared, it's indicating that it went through a process in this manner. Now, then Allah Ta'ala mentions that in this hellfire prepared for these people who are unjust, is a fire whose curtains will hem them in. So, suradiquha. So the curtains of hell will hem them in. What's going on here? The curtains, the suradiq, prevent them from moving around. There's a hadith from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu in which it said that they, there are four, right? The thickness of each is 40 years journey. So there's curtains in a, upon curtains and they're so thick that to get from one side to the other is 40 years journey. And these hem them in. So if you think of a building and there's like a kiswa, like a curtain, a thick curtain on each side, or there's layers of curtains, these curtains are keeping them hemmed in, right? There, there, there's some subtlety here because suradiq are decorative pieces that shield from the elements, their adornments. So by mentioning curtains, a decorative piece, there's a kind of istihza, there's a kind of uh, ridiculing going on. And you see that in the next phrase. And if they seek water, they seek relief, غيث in Arabic means a relieving rain or relieving water. That's a positive term. But here, Allah Ta'ala is saying they're given relief by a water. 
that scalds. So that's not a relief. But the word for rain and water can sometimes be relief. So it's a kind of belittlement of them by calling the instrument of their punishment relief. Right? It's, you know, I, we don't want to compare Quran to human speech. But we see this in different languages. If a person wants to really humiliate someone, they could call the humiliating thing a good name. Like if someone is really angry and they want to assault someone, they could say, here, I have this treat for you, you know. And it's not a treat, it's a, it's a beat down. So the relief, the curtains, these are all words for good things in this world. But it's a kind of belittlement of them in the hereafter. It's not really relieving rainwater. There's no relief here at all. So this is an istihza, a kind of belittlement and ridicule that adds to the torment of hell for these people. So being punished in hell is bad enough, but they're also mocked and ridiculed by these things being called this. And this increases their anguish. So this means that the, the torment of hell is not just physical for them, it's also mental. Right? Now, coming to the end of this, we want to stay within the framework of the themes. After saying all of this, Allah concludes this section by saying, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ إِنَّ لَا نُضِيعُوا أَجْرَمًا أَحْسَنَ عَمَلًا أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتُ عَدْنٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْدِهِمُ الْأَنْهَارِ يُحَلَّوْنَ فِيهَا مِنْ أَسَاوِرَ مِنْ ذَهَبٍ وَيَلْبَسُونَ ثِيَابًا خُضْرًا مِنْ سُنْدُسٍ وَاسْتَبَرَقٍ مُتَّكِئِينَ فِيهَا عَلَى الْأَرَائِكِ نِعْمَ الثَّوَابُ وَحَسُنَتْ مُرْتَفَقًا So after mentioning the people of hell and what they receive, Allah says, As for those who believe and do righteousness, we will not waste the reward of those who work righteousness. They will have gardens of Eden beneath which rivers flow. Reclining on comfortable furnishings, they will be adorned with bracelets of gold and will wear green garments of silk and brocade. What a wonderful reward and what an excellent resting place. So, here Allah mentions Iman and Amal, right? So, Iman, the belief in the six pillars, righteous actions, those things that are wajib and mustahab. And here, Allah mentions the rewards given to them. Ahsana amala. You know, they do their things sincerely for the sake of Allah in accordance to the sunnah. They receive the gardens of Eden beneath which rivers flow. And they're reclining on comfortable furnishings. And they are adorned with bracelets of gold and green garments of silk and brocade. Sundus in Arabic it refers to silken garments that are worn directly on the skin. You, have, you can have a silk robe, but you have something underneath. But if you have a silk shirt or a, a silk garment that's touching the skin directly, this is called sundus. And this is something that averts the heat of summer. If you wear something silk like that directly on the skin, it minimizes the heat. So it's like saying the most comfortable clothing you can imagine. And istabarak refers to the thick hem or the thick brocade that is stitched with gold. And this is usually referring to the overgarment worn outside over that silk garment. So 
what you find here is that the adornments are mentioned before the clothing in the verse. So Allah mentions they're adorned with bracelets of gold and they will wear green garments of silk and brocade. So the adornments are mentioned first and then the clothing. And the scholars of Tafsir say this is because usually the adornments are going to be more valuable than the clothing. So if someone comes and they have an expensive pair of pants and an expensive blouse, but they have a really expensive diamond bracelet or ring, you're going to notice that first as being the most valuable thing they have on them. So that's mentioned first. And then the clothing is mentioned, even if the clothing is valuable. So this is a consolation from Allah Ta'ala to the poor Sahaba. Because go back to the earlier verses. The command, وَاسْبِرْ nafsak, Be patient with those who call upon your Lord in the morning and the evening. Right? يُرِيدُونَ wajha. Do not avert your eyes from those poor people. So after mentioning all of these things, Allah now consoles those poor people by mentioning what they're going to receive in the hereafter. Right? So these Quraysh who are so rich and powerful, who are too arrogant and proud to sit with the poor, they have wealth in this world, but look what they receive in the hereafter. They don't look at the relief they get in the hereafter in the form of boiling water. Look at the garments they get in the hereafter compared to you who receives gold bracelets and adornments and green garments of silk and brocade and so on. So this is a consolation from Allah Ta'ala to the Sahaba whom the Quraysh wanted to cast out of the gathering of the Prophet Now, muttaki'ina fiha ala al-ara'ik they're reclining on it says couches literally Araik is from Arika. So they're reclining on couches. What does that mean? We go home and recline on couches every day. But this points to complete relaxation and complete luxurious ease, free of all fatigue and all effort. Right? So it's just pointing to the lack of work. It's not that they have to, in order to have those things, they have to go out and do backbreaking work in Jannah. No, they have it. Which is there. So what we have here to conclude, we have this common motif in the Quran where Allah mentions punishments and hellfire and then mentions Jannah. He mentions torment and then he mentions divine mercy. And we mentioned before that it is the way of the early generations that they would always mention the things that would induce fear before mentioning the things that induce hope. You always want to end on a positive note. So in these verses that are on this theme, Allah ends by mentioning Jannah after mentioning the hellfire and the torments of hell. Now we have to combine these two. We don't just take one and ignore the other. right? Now if you were around in the so-called Islamic scene in the 90s, in the early 2000s, you might remember that a lot of the, the discourse was all about hellfire and condemnation and, you know, it was really hardcore. And then things changed. I mean, 9-11 triggered a lot of the change of discourse, but then it became all about love, you know, love and mercy and, you know, we're all good, Allah loves you. And 
Both of them are true, you know, but we go into an imbalance when we only look at one and ignore the other. You have to have both. You have to have the talk about hellfire. There has to be the fire and brimstone talks and reminders just as there has to be talks about the rahmah of Allah, the mercy of Allah. We need them all, right? We're now at a time where people don't even believe that uh, there's any consequence for what they do because it's all just a message of mercy and lo- love and there's no, there's no wa'id, right? There's wa'id and wa'id. There's the divine promise and the divine threat. There's mention of hell. There's mention of jannah. There's mention of torment. There's mention of mercy. Allah Ta'ala mentions the two together. And it is the way of the early Muslims to always combine them. If anyone separates the two or only focuses on one, we're going to have uh, imbalance. And we see that reflected here where Allah mentions Jahannam and then ends that theme with a mention of Jannah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.